The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Glad to see all of you here, all bundled up this, this morning, a little bit colder. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing, acceptable to you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the highlights of the fall for me so far has been the consecration service, which we had on November 1st, just a little over a week ago. We consecrated our new columbarium, as well as the memorial garden, as well as the 106 plots at the cemetery at Cook Walden, which is specifically for All Saints members. And then also our chapel cross on the, the chapel there. And we did so in memory of Andrew Halton. And then the burr oak tree that's in the chapel courtyard right there in memory of Alden Malakowski. This day was a joyful day. It was beautiful in so many respects, but also weighty in large part because of who and who Alden and Andrew were and still are, but also when they died and how they died. You all know at this point that Andrew died at 35 years old from pancreatic cancer and Alden at 13 years old from leukemia. And this week, we also have a memorial service for a friend of mine who died suddenly last Sunday. uh, And her name is Carrie McDonald. She died very unexpectedly at 44 years old. And it's left me wondering, how is it that we can face troubles like these with any semblance of peace? Troubles like these or others, whether... Even some of the things that Josh mentioned in the confession of sin, whether divorce or serious illness or mental illness or serious financial loss or the loss of friendship and the loneliness results, which is what I preached on a couple of weeks ago. Is it possible for us to face them in any way similar to the way that we see Jesus facing them throughout the gospels with significant composure and peace in the midst of all the turmoil and chaos? Is it possible? And if so, how? How do we do this? And some of you who have been through things like this, you might say prayer or family or community of friends or, or counseling. And, and while all of those are very important and integral to the recovery and endurance through them, they're not the main way by which we endure through the main issues and troubles of our lives. Psalm 95 in the scriptures, and I would argue that worship is, is what we're talking about today. We're in the middle of this series on the essential emphases of the church. We've covered hospitality and eternity and today worship. So what is it? And why worship, particularly why worship the Lord, and then how? 
How do we go about it? So first of all, what is worship? Psalm 95, our Old Testament reading, is a classic text which teaches us about worship. So here's the definition from Psalm 95 and other Psalms as well. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your entire being to the point where you and your life are changed. Ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your whole being that leaves you changed. So notice, first of all, that all the primary aspects of the human person are spoken of in this psalm. Psalm, The psalm begins in verse one, speaking about our emotions. Let us make a joyful noise. Other translations read, let us shout. The only time that you shout is when your emotions are engaged and amplified, when you care deeply about something. So this is emotional language. And then again, in verse six, we find this first word, come, which in the Latin is venite. Many churches sing this psalm. It's called the venite. In fact, in morning prayer, our staff, we have morning prayer every morning, 930 to 10. You're all welcome to come. But we often sing this psalm. Come, the venite, come and, and here, let us worship and bow down and kneel. So it begins with emotional language, then it moves on to language of submission and choice, meaning that the will is engaged. So you're not just swept along in some emotional experience, you're participating in a volitional way according to your choice. And not just your emotions or your will, but also your body. Because bowing down is not just figurative language of submission, it's also speaking of a physical act where your body's engaged. So the emotions and the will and the body, and then fourthly, our mind. Verse seven here speaks about hearing God's word or hearing his voice. And then verses eight through 11, the rest of the psalm is this reasoned, rational argument for why that word should be heard and heeded. And that's the entire human person in all of its complexity, emotions, will, body, mind, all engaged and engaged to the point, this is important, that you're changed. Because verses eight through 11 also describe this desired difference between this generation to whom the psalmist is writing and the first generation of Israel, the generation that that walked out of Egypt through the parting of the waters and wandered in the wilderness because all aspects of their being were engaged. Their emotions were engaged. When they, they walked through the waters on the other side of the Red Sea, they shouted and they danced, giving thanks to God, but their bodies were also engaged. They danced and then they wandered and walked throughout the wilderness for 40 years and their minds were engaged because Moses gave them the very word of God in the 10 commandments. And he was the mouthpiece of God as well, but their wills resisted. So verse eight speaks about the way it puts it is their hearts were hardened. And that tells us something very important, which is that we can have an emotional experience in a religious setting and it not be worship, or we can go through various religious liturgies or rituals, even as we're doing this morning, and mouth that we affirm the doctrines and belief and it not be worship. And we can even sit faithfully for years under preaching and intellectually understand everything that's being said and it not be worship. Because for worship to truly be worship, all of your being has to be engaged. Even as you ascribe ultimate value or worth to God with the result that you're changed, that your hearts are captured. And so ask yourself, are you worshiping this morning? And notice also what prompts the psalmist to to do all of this, all the shouting, all the bowing, all the thinking. He speaks about the Lord in verses three through seven. And he speaks about him in different ways. He first of all says, let's do this because the Lord is a great king and a great God. And then he goes on in verse seven and speaks about him, not just about who he is or how that he he rules them and over all the world, but also how he is with them, that he's like a shepherd 
that there's a personal aspect to him, that he's known by, they're known by him and loved by him and protected and provided for. So he's rehearsing all of the excellencies, all of the benefits, all the truth, all the realities about who God is to the point where he's reflecting upon it and expressing these excellencies until there's a bursting forth of realization and emotion and desire and action. He begins to realize God's worth. And that's worship. Worship comes from this root word, worth. It's recognizing his worth and acting in a way that's according to it. We had a break-in at All Saints about a week ago. Some of y'all know this. One of the doors was left open. And so these various nefarious-looking criminals wandered about our campus in our building from about 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. a couple of Thursdays ago. And they stole lots of different things. They stole $10,000 in camera equipment and somebody's Rubik's Cube off their desk. I mean, who steals a Rubik's Cube off somebody's desk? But these guys did. But you know what they didn't steal? They didn't steal all the hundreds of thousands of dollars of artwork in the gallery. Now, why? Why didn't they steal it? Same reason that this man, William Pugh, he's a professor at UTSA. He was in Georgia this summer and he walked into a thrift store and he saw a priceless painting by Ken Pankston. Bankston, beautiful, priceless painting. And he knew instantly how much it was worth. They sold it to him for $150. It was priceless. He donated it, but it was something like that. He said that when I saw it, I was struck by it. I was filled with amazement. And so I had to buy it. He acted and he responded very differently in relation to it compared with everybody else who who thought that they knew what it was. They didn't recognize its worth. That's like worship. It's seeing, truly seeing with the eyes of faith what God is worth and then responding with all of our being in a way that's fitting. So again, are you? Are you worshiping this morning? Because that is worship. But now, why worship? Why should we worship God? And the answer is in our text, though it's a little bit hard to find. We can miss it easily. It's in verse 3, where the psalmist says, For the Lord is a great God, great king above all gods. Meaning he's a better object of worship than all the other options. And what this verse tells us is that we can't divide the world into people who worship something and to people who don't worship something. Because everybody has an object to which they ascribe ultimate and greatest worth or value so much so that their lives are changed or even controlled by that object. In other words, we can divide the world into worshipers who worship things that distort their life and damage their life and their souls and people who worship the only proper object that is worthy of our lives and our souls. So even if you're the most secular and irreligious, non-religious person, the Psalms, all of the scriptures would have us understand that you are a worshiper. And that's why he says you should worship the Lord because you're already worshiping something. A good friend of mine was in Washington, D.C. last week, and he took his daughter there to see D.C., but also to go to an NBA game. And Kevin Durant, a former Longhorn, uh, who plays for the Brooklyn Nets, was there playing against the Washington, D.C. team. I don't even remember what their name is now. They used to be the Bullets, but you're not the Bullets anymore. But anyways, they were there playing them. And Kevin Durant put this unbelievable move on Daniel Gafford, who was defending him. Daniel Gafford's about six foot ten. And what happened was that even as kids say to this day, it's almost as though, to use the phrase, broke his ankles because it looked like that was happening because Gafford looked injured. Katie jabbed one way and then this crossover in the other direction. And Gafford, again, six foot 10, went into the splits, if you can imagine that. And he bent over and his right knee was twisted in this painful, ugly direction. And Kevin Durant just jumped up and casually shot a jump shot and made it. And what did the crowd do? The Washington crowd, what did they do? 
They went crazy. They cheered, they erupted in praise for the opposing team. And why? After he had just humiliated their player, why did they do that? Well, C.S. Lewis explains why. C.S. Lewis didn't like sports, never played sports, never watched sports, never cared about sports, but he explains this. He says, the most obvious fact about praise, it's kind of a long quote, but listen, it's important. The most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings of praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, of wine, of actors, of colleges, of countries, of flowers, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians. Modern America knows nothing about praising politicians, do we? Or scholars, even like C.S. Lewis. He says, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in praising it with them. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, he says, in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. You hear what he's saying? He's saying praise is inescapable for us because it is part and parcel to what it means to be human. It is essential to us and foundation to us, foundational, more essential and more foundational than any other part of us. And so generally delighting in and praising something that's truly beautiful or truly excellent, whether Kevin Durant, his basketball skills, or seeing beauty in a person or in a painting or in a place, that is all fine and good and part of what it means to be human. But when the general praise of something Anything other than God becomes your highest praise, you are worshiping that object, whatever it may be, as a God. And your God will be your king. Whatever it is, it will, it will be your king. It will rule and control your life. And that means that we all can know what the greatest problem of our lives is. Do you know what the greatest problem of your life is? Well, Psalm 95 and the rest of the scriptures would say, that what leads us to make dumb and damaging decisions, to, to do wrong and moral things even when we don't want to or can't help ourselves, so, we, so to speak, or when we become overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and anger, or we're so driven by ambition that we run over people, or we're so controlling that we squeeze the joy and the delight out of any aspect of life, or we harm ourselves or our bodies or the bodies of others. The reason we do any and all of that is because of what we worship. So nothing less than reassigning or transferring the ultimate value of your life from whatever it is to God can change you and can free you and can heal you and can make you into the person that you know deep down you want to be and that you need to be and that you were created to be. Because this first step in beginning to do what the psalmist is calling us to do, which is to worship God, it's first and foremost recognizing and admitting that you've already ascribed ultimate worth to something, something. Be honest. Be honest that your relationship to that, whatever it is, is one of worship. And be honest that it's distorting and damaging your life and the lives of those around you. C.S. Lewis, again, he said this. He said, God is that object which to admire is simply to be awake. 
to have entered the real world. God is that object which to admire is simply to be awake and to have entered the real world. To not admire or appreciate him is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end, to have lost all truly good experiences. You hear what he's saying? He's saying worshiping God puts all other praiseworthy experiences in their proper place and it allows them to be good as God created them to be good and they could actually be life-giving. So romance, marriage, sex, for example, if not worshiped, but approached and appreciated in relationship to worshiping God, it can be good and life-giving and beautiful, but if substituted for God and worshiped as a God, it will crush your soul and it will wreck your life, the lives of others. And not just it, but anything, anything, work, money, kids, comfort, power, activism, achievement, anything, food, drink, cars, boats, books, learning, degrees, anything. If you give yourself to it as the greatest and highest good, you will die little by little, slowly, spiritually, from the inside out. And eventually, whatever that thing is for you, it will disappoint you. And some of you know this right now in a bitter sort of way. It will disappoint you, it will fail you, it or he or she or they will leave you or bore you. And if you fail it, it'll never forgive you. It will not be a good master. It'll never forgive you. And you'll never forgive yourself for failing it. You'll actually begin to hate yourself, but not God, not with him. Psalmist says he's a, he's a shepherd. He's like a shepherd to his people. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd in John 10. Who does what? I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep to forgive them, to restore them, to forgive them all of their failures and all of their false worship. And that's what this woman that we read about in our gospel reading from Mark chapter 14 does. She's in all three of the synoptic gospels and she realized what nobody else in this account did. She broke this alabaster flask of perfume of pure nard over Jesus's head, incredibly expensive. We hear 300 denarii worth of perfume. A denarius was one day's wage, so a, a year's salary, probably her lifetime of savings, everything that she had saved and worked for, probably from being a prostitute. And everyone who sees her do, the, do this, the text says is indignant. They're seething about it, thinking that it was utterly wasteful. But what does Jesus call it? He says that it's beautiful, that it's appropriately expensive because it matched the incalculable expense of his death. So her broke, breaking this perfume open and pouring it out upon him, all of her life savings, everything that she had, she demonstrated that she got it, that she alone understood that Jesus as God in the flesh here is the one and greatest object of all glory and honor and value in all creation because he's beyond creation. And he was about to take himself and be broken open and poured out for the forgiveness of her sins, of the sins of the world, and our acceptance and reconciliation with God. She there realized in that moment what Jesus was worth, and she worshiped in all aspects of her being, mind, body, heart, will. Nothing in all the world, the best things of this world, and for Luke, the poor, Nothing in all the world, not even the poor, is worth giving yourself to, ultimately, because only God is God, and only God in Christ has given all of himself already to you and for you. So why worship? 
because only worshiping him can set your life right. But how? How to worship? Now, I wish I had more time, but I don't. This last point should be an entire sermon. It's not going to be an entire sermon. I promise you that. But let me give you just a few ideas, five quick ideas about how worship is done. I'll do it quickly. Number one, worship is done in community. It is a corporate act. Very simply, if you read Psalm 95, you'll notice that everything that's said about it is said in the plural. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us shout. Let us kneel because we're the people of his pasture. Even in verse seven where it says, today, if you would harden his voice, you need to southernize that word because it's in the plural. You need to say y'all, even if y'all hear his voice because it's a corporate act. And that means that reading your Bible individually is very important. Please do that. Praying on your own, praying with your family, praying with a small group, reading your scriptures with a small group, or listening to a sermon, or watching on the live stream, or taking a class, or Sunday school, all very important, all to be encouraged, all very formative, but not worship. Because God came in the flesh, and we gather together in the flesh in order to worship him. And when we do, the New Testament speaks about us as the body of Christ. By yourself, you are not the body of Christ. Only with and in relationship to others. And so the single most important and transformative thing we do is gather together as the body of Christ. Everything else that we do, every other individual or small group spiritual endeavor, it is to prepare us for what we're doing right now. It's a corporate act. Secondly, worship is to be done in and according to truth. How do we as Christians know what's true? We know according to the scriptures because Jesus said that. In John 17, 7, 17, 17, he prays for his disciples. And he says, Lord, Father, sanctify them in truth. Set them apart. Change their lives. Make them good, holy men. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so everything that we do here has to be in accord and based upon the scriptures. Because if it's not, guess what? We'll start doing really weird things in worship. How does the psalmist know in verses three through five all the things that he says about the Lord to be true? He's a great God. He's like a shepherd and he he cares for his people. He knows it because he's submitting himself to the self-revelation of God in the scriptures. If you don't do that, if we don't do that, do you know what you'll do with God? You will design God for yourself. You'll take a little bit of Christianity. You'll take a little bit of Buddhism or whatever sort of spirituality you're into in the moment. Probably a little bit of self-help a little bit of political theology or political perspective, progressive or conservative or libertarian political theory, and then you'll add in a little bit of sentimentality and you will create a patchwork God who can't be a great king to you, who can't challenge you, who can't change you, who can't correct you or outrage you or fight against you, and who can't really be a God to you, can't heal you, can't save you. And then what you'll do is you'll look for a church whose worship most closely matches your patchwork Frankenstein God as possible. Because without the scriptures as our rule and guide for worship, worship becomes just that. It becomes a collective projection of some God that we've dreamt up in order to not be changed. It's got to be according to truth. But then presence. Verse two says, come into his presence. Worship is always entering into the presence of God in heaven. I hope you pay attention to everything that we do here in worship. It's all very, very intentional especially as we come to the Eucharist and some of the things that we say week in, week out at the Eucharist. Many of you children, I bet, have kind of memorized if you've been here long enough. But one of the things that we say is, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we worship. 
We join in with them in worship because that's what we understand to be happening in these moments that by the spirit, we are being lifted up from earth into heaven and the veil between heaven and earth is being pulled back a little more fully in these moments. And we get to peer in and to peek into and actually join in and participate in the worship that is always eternally transpiring in heaven. Growing up in Eden, Oklahoma, I've told you this before, there was a train track right behind my house And for our adolescent entertainment, my friends and I would run along the train when it would slow down at the intersection by my house. We would run alongside, we would reach up and grab a hold of the ladders there on the side of the train. Children, never, never do this. We would do that and then like hobos, we'd run along and we'd pull ourselves up and we would ride on the side of the train for about a mile or so until hopefully it slowed down at the next intersection and we would jump off and roll. I don't know how we didn't roll to our desk. It was by far the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. But in some ways, it's like what we do in worship each and every week because there is an eternal worship that is always transpiring in heaven. And in this hour, week after week, by the Spirit, God is lifting us up so that we jump on and we join in with angels and archangels, all that is always transpiring there. And then we're sent out. We jump off and we're sent out, changed by the presence of God, because that's finally what ultimately changes us is his very presence. Changed to be sent out to be the body of Christ in this world for the world. And that is possible because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. So sacrifice, fourth idea. His once-for-all sacrifice that's eternally being presented to the Father, his perfect life, his perfect worship, his substitutionary death for us, it is always being presented to the Father because worship is always sacrificial. It is always an offering of ourselves, all of ourselves, emotions, body, mind, will to God in response to who he is and what he is. And that's what Jesus did. As God the Son, he perfectly did that on earth. He offered himself to God the Father, and he did so as a man so that we as men and women might join our worship to his and our worship be accepted. So in worship, we don't re-sacrifice Jesus. That was cleared up and established a long time ago at the Reformation. But what we do is we liturgically represent his once-for-all sacrifice in order that in everything that we might offer, it might be accepted. And what do we offer? We offer bread and wine at the Eucharist. And it's, it's an offering as an expression of all of creation. Everything in all of creation accepted by us as a gift from God to be returned to God. And we also offer ourselves. As we often say, our souls and our bodies. And we also offer our words of praise given to us by the scriptures. So in short, we offer everything to God because God has already given himself to us. And when we offer all of ourselves to God in and through Jesus, what does he give us back? What we ultimately need, which is himself, the body and blood of Christ, having already received the word of Christ and all of it, which is received by faith so that we might become what we receive which is the body of Christ, his people, with his very word in our mouths in this world for the world. And friends, this alone can give us rest. This is where I end, because this is where the psalmist ends. Worship ultimately leads us to rest. And the rest that Psalm 95 speaks about is the nation of Israel finally entering into the quote-unquote rest of the promised land of Canaan. So they no longer had to walk. They no longer had to wander throughout the wilderness. They could cease from that physical work of walking, but the scriptures speak about a deeper spiritual rest, a deeper rest that is spiritual that comes from believing the gospel, which gives you rest from all of your spiritual work 
Because apart from the grace of God and apart from believing the gospel, we all work spiritually. Moral people, that they work spiritually trying to be good people and come to church and to do good things, believing that maybe if they're good, then God will love them. It's not the gospel. And irreligious, secular people, they're working too, trying to gain and to keep the object of their ultimate value and to serve it. So being successful enough or beautiful enough or rich enough or respected enough so that maybe just maybe they'll be somebody. It's not the gospel. What the gospel does is it ends all this tiring and destructive spiritual work because it says what Jesus said at the last on the cross where he said, it is finished. Meaning the perfect work, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect worship, it's been finished. It's been done and offered by Jesus and received by the Father. So the call to worship is really a call to join in with him, to join yourself to Jesus, to believe in him and to receive him and to offer yourself to him and offer yourself through him to God the Father and trust that you'll be received, to trust that you've already been given everything, everything that you could ever desire, everything that you could ever want, and therefore be at rest. So rest your soul. Do you remember the mirror of Irised in the first Harry Potter novel? Do you know this, Do you know this kids? Yeah. Uh, it's a children's book, so it's not too difficult to figure out Irised is desire spelled backwards. And when Harry stumbles upon this mirror, he sees his parents in the mirror. This is the object of greatest desire, his parents that had died when he was a child. And so he runs off to get Ron, his best friend, to show Ron his parents, but Ron doesn't see his parents when he looks in the mirror. What does he see? He sees him as a sports champion and as a, a prefect at Hogwarts, as one of the most popular boys in school, because they each saw what they desired most. And Harry sat there day after day, gazing in the mirror, giving all of himself, all of his heart to what he wanted most and what he valued more than anything else in all the world. He wanted and, and desired and valued his parents. And so Dumbledore has to come by and to pull Harry away. And he tells him, men have wasted away before this mirror, entranced by what they have seen. So what are you wasting away before? What are you sitting before gazing at and wasting away before? And what do you think you'd see if you looked into that mirror? I can tell you what Jesus would see. He would see God the Father in the glory of the Holy Spirit and himself before the Father with all of you with him. So friends, don't waste away before any objects of lesser value than God because you were made to see him. You're made to see him and be with him, and someday you will. Until then, rest in the worship that has been provided for you in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would provide for us the rest that we need. We pray that you would enable us by your spirit to enter fully and completely into the worship that has been provided for us in and through your Son that we might join ourselves to him and even to angels and archangels and laud and magnify your glorious name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.